Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. As, as Ryan said, we are working together to raise $250,000 during the month of December. We are still well short of that goal, so if you've been waiting for your chance to give, now is your chance, now is the time. Um, if you have given, thank you, thank you for your, for your sacrificial generosity. Um, we'll be sending out an update this week, later this week, with exact numbers on where we stand there, all right? Today is the final Sunday of the season of Advent, a season of longing and preparation for the birth of Jesus, who is the King of Kings. During Advent, we relive ancient Israel's anticipation of the coming Messiah, and we simultaneously long for his return. We're in the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of God's salvation through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. And this, this salvation, it's not, it's not an abstract concept, nor is it set some time in the future. The Gospel changes everything it touches, and it touches everything. We have a new king, and his kingdom is making over the world present tense. The Gospel of Luke opens with an an angel announcing a miraculous conception, the conception of John to an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. But because Zechariah failed to trust the Lord's promise, he was rendered mute, unable to speak, Throughout, throughout his wife's entire pregnancy. So Zechariah failed to trust God's word, and as a result, he was unable to speak a word of his own. Then Luke goes on to, to describe an even more miraculous conception, the conception of Jesus to a young virgin named Mary. Unlike Zechariah, Mary trusted the Lord's promise, And rather than waiting in silence, like Zechariah, she sings a song of praise and thanksgiving. And Mary wasn't the only one singing. As we read the opening chapters of Luke, we get a sense of rapturous joy from everyone. Everyone seems to understand the broader implications of these two pregnancies. It's not just the women who are pregnant. All of creation is pregnant with hope and expectation. Divine blessing is coming. Everyone is singing and dancing. Elizabeth, right, filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims with a loud cry. Her unborn baby, John, filled with the Holy Spirit, leaps for joy in the womb. Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with God's own Son, sings a song of praise and thanksgiving. It's rapturous joy. And then today we get to see what Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, says when his voice is restored to him. So put put yourself in Zechariah's sandals, right? Imagine being silent all day, every day for over nine months. He was unable to speak a word. He He could write on a tablet but that was probably slow and expensive. Of course, others could speak to Zechariah, but for the most part, he was alone with his thoughts. How terrifying that would be, right? He did not even have a smartphone to help him pass the time. Alone with his thoughts. Many of us would consider the Lord's discipline of Zechariah here to be cruel and unusual, but Really, this was a blessing in disguise. 
to sit silently before the Lord was precisely what Zechariah needed. It's what many of us need too. It's, it's what I need, especially in this season. So Zechariah went about his everyday life. His friends and co-workers probably thought he was crazy. He had lost his mind. He could feel his unborn son dancing in the womb and couldn't speak a word to his wife about it. He was no doubt hopeful and joyful, but this must have been agonizing. Really, all he could do all day was pray. He, spent, he, he probably spent a lot of time thinking about that encounter with the angel, running it back through his mind. Elizabeth had conceived as promised, so why had he been so faithless? What is God doing? What would I say if I could speak? What, what will I say when my voice is given back to me? And if you'll recall... Zechariah was rendered mute while ministering in the temple all alone. The people were gathered outside waiting for Zechariah to exit the temple and speak a word of blessing over them. But he never got to speak that word of blessing. So in a sense, he's pregnant with it. He has been carrying around a word of blessing for the last nine months. So when given the chance, what does he say? Let's read beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. So Elizabeth gives birth to a baby boy, and she names him John, as instructed by the angel who appeared to her husband. In doing this, Elizabeth is faithfully devoting her son to the Lord. Despite years and years of longing for a child of her own, she entrusts John to his heavenly father. On one hand, this is how all Christian parents ought to respond to to the gift of a child. Every child in this building belongs to God. They have been entrusted to us by a far more loving and far more protective and far more powerful heavenly parent. And we should take great comfort in that reality. Comfort for the children who are with us and and comfort for the children who are with the Lord. Christian parenting is parenting in light of God's sovereign parenthood. There's something else going on here. Luke is drawing a parallel for us. The story of Elizabeth and John mirrors the ancient story of Hannah and Samuel. Hannah was a barren woman, but the Lord gave her Samuel. And in response, Hannah devoted Samuel to the Lord, and Samuel grew up to be a priest and prophet over Israel. He prepared the way for the Lord's anointed king, David. 
Samuel actually anointed King David himself. Likewise, Elizabeth was a barren woman, but the Lord gave her John. In response, Elizabeth devoted John to the Lord, and John grew up to be a priest and prophet over Israel. He prepared the way for the anointed King Jesus. John actually anointed King Jesus himself. That's, that's part of what's happening later on when John baptizes Jesus. John is anointing the king of kings. Okay, but it's not just Elizabeth naming the boy John, right? After, after months of soul searching, Zechariah boldly affirms that name too. And in response, everyone marvels. Why? Well, presumably... Elizabeth had been trying to explain that John was the name given by the angel. And so Zechariah essentially says, it's not up to me. His name is John. His affirmation of the name John is a confirmation that something incredible is happening here. In addition, Zechariah immediately begins to speak again. So that's clue number two that something incredible is happening here. When Zechariah opens his mouth to speak after a long period of silence, we're being told something. This is a sign. After a long period of silence, God is speaking again. The last great Old Covenant prophet has been born. The baby in Elizabeth's lap will be God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel, and he will prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings. Let's read verses 65 to 66. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So make no mistake, every Israelite in the hill country of Judea would have understood the gravity of what the Lord was doing. They may not have known what the Lord was doing, but they would have known he was doing something. Why? Because he had opened a barren womb. The womb of a woman well beyond her childbearing years. And the scriptures were clear on this. This was a common theme. When the Lord opens a barren womb, divine blessing is on its way. So every Israelite in the hill country of Judea was expecting something great. What is God doing? Answer. He's bringing deliverance. Deliverance. He's finally doing what he promised to do centuries ago. One evil empire after another had trampled Israel underfoot, and their only source of comfort and hope was an ancient promise that God would bring deliverance. So Zechariah's song springs forth from, from not just months of silent prayer or decades of infertility. Zechariah's song springs forth from centuries of eager expectation. God's people had long been waiting for this day. And I think there's an application here for us. Because during their, their centuries of waiting, the people of Israel were called to trust promises from the past about the future 
without knowing what that would look like or whether they would actually get to see it. So many faithful generations passed without witnessing the fulfillment of those promises. And for Christian individualists like us, it's really difficult to understand why God would allow so many faithful people to live their entire lives without getting what they most wanted. We think that when we pray for something, God ought to do it and do it quickly. But that's not really how He operates. Because that's not what actually builds up our faith. That's not what actually teaches us to trust Him. God does desire to bless us. He has proven that in Jesus. He desires to meet us in our desires. Whether we desire a spouse, a child, a house, a job, the salvation of a friend, the healing of an illness, freedom from anxiety, God is listening. According to the Bible, God hears us every time we talk to Him. And eventually, no matter what, He sends deliverance every time. God does not give stones when His children ask for bread. He always gives good things to His children. Now, hang with me on that, okay? He either gives you what you ask or He gives you something better. Sometimes you don't get what you think you want. But sometimes the gift is wrapped in ugly wrapping paper. And this means it can sometimes be difficult to distinguish between answered prayer and unanswered prayer. Maybe you've been praying for good and godly things, but all you're getting is suffering and frustration. Maybe you've been praying for relief, but things are just getting worse. Where is God? Whatever happened to ask and it will be given? Why would God allow his children to place their hope in a deliverance they would not get to see within their lifetimes? Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. It does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What is God doing when deliverance tarries? At minimum, He's producing endurance, character, and hope. At minimum, he is using you as a living witness to the sufferings of Christ. At minimum, he is making his power perfect in your weakness. At minimum, he is using your joy in suffering to prove that the gospel is real. At minimum. This is not God giving you stones instead of bread. He doesn't do that. He either gives you what you ask or he gives you something better. And so you keep praying and resolve to trust that whatever God brings is precisely the bread you need. It's deliverance from something. 
God is not the sort of heavenly father who feeds us candy merely because we ask for it. That's not love. God is the sort of heavenly father who feeds us broccoli and sometimes candy because he wants us to grow strong and healthy. That's love. And one more thought. It's not entirely accurate to say that God was silent for hundreds of years. From the moment he spoke the universe into existence, God has never been silent. God's people have never been without a word from the Lord. To the contrary, we have the most valuable resource imaginable, the Bible, a word from our Creator. We have a word from the one who knows the past, the present, the future, and the number of hairs on my head. Consider the value of that resource for a lost and fallen and, and wandering humanity. Open the Bible. Read the Bible. Know the Bible. Trust the Bible. If you trust God's Word, then strictly speaking, He is never silent. Don't believe the lie that He's holding out on you. Rather, learn from Zechariah. When you suffer loss, when you are waiting, when you doubt, when you are frustrated, when you feel alone, trust that God is meeting you in your desire and growing your faith. The wrapping paper may be ugly, but God is helping you to trust His promises. In the midst of your pain and suffering, God is teaching you the lyrics to a song of deliverance. And you may not get to sing that song on this side of your final breath, but he will still be a good, good father. God was teaching Zechariah the lyrics to a song of deliverance. Zechariah sings like a man leaving the wilderness for the land of promise. He sings with joy and vigor and angst. He sings about God's holy covenant, God's redemption and salvation, God's mercy and forgiveness, and the triumph of light and life over the shadow of darkness and death. Let's read it. Verse 67. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Beautiful. What can we learn from Zechariah's song? There's a lot 
We could say, but, but I would like to zoom out and highlight two very big picture things, okay? Number one, we cannot understand the gospel without the Old Testament. You will never really understand who Jesus is or what Jesus came to do without understanding what the scriptures written prior to Jesus were saying about him. In other words, we cannot know Jesus the Messiah apart from his Jewish heritage, the promises they were trusting, the blessings they were awaiting. Zechariah's song should raise several questions for us. Who is the God of Israel? Who was Abraham? Who was David? What did the prophets say? What is this holy covenant? These are questions answered by the Old Testament. And that's part of the reason we observe Advent. 21st century American Christians are far removed from 1st century Jews, but Advent forces us to reconsider Jesus within his own cultural, historical, and socio-political context. Advent invites us to ask the most important question of all. What did Jesus think he was doing? What prophecies and promises did Jesus think he was fulfilling? What sort of deliverance did Jesus think he was bringing? We cannot understand the gospel without the Old Testament. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Number two, God's deliverance is for real people in the real world, in real space, and real time. The Christian faith is not spiritual as opposed to physical or material. In fact, the Christian faith redefines those categories. Because our God created a good world, and He wants to redeem all of it. He has not abandoned His creation. His mission is about more than tractor-beaming souls into heaven. Jesus came so that Israel might be born again into a global, international entity called the church. Jesus came so that we might be the first fruits of a new humanity on the earth. Jesus came to guide the nations toward peace. Jesus took on flesh, passed through a birth canal, learned to walk, obeyed his parents every time, played games with his friends, stubbed his toe, worshipped in the temple, got hungry, worked an honest job, wept in the face of death, and then experienced death himself. He lived a real human life in real space and real time because he came to redeem everything about the real world. Jesus is working in us and through us to bring restoration to every square inch of existence whether you are the CEO of Amazon or a refugee without a place to call home, whether you are the leader of the free world or you're scrubbing crayon off the drywall, God's deliverance is for real people in the real world in real space and real time. His deliverance is for the real you with all of your baggage, 
in the midst of your everyday mundane. All right, let's read verse 80. And the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What's going on here? Why, why does John live in the wilderness? Well, remember from verse 17, which we covered a few weeks ago, the angel in the temple told Zechariah that John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a wilderness prophet who called the nation of Israel to repent and worship faithfully. Towards the end of his ministry, Elijah passed his authority to Elisha, who then crossed the Jordan River out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. This is another common theme in the Bible. God prepares Israel in the wilderness prior to leading them into the land of promise. The most obvious example of this was Moses and Joshua. Moses prepared Israel in the wilderness, passed his authority to Joshua, who then crossed the Jordan River and into, out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. So John is a wilderness prophet, like Moses and Elijah before him. What are we supposed to do with that information? We're supposed to be on the lookout. When it comes time for John to pass his authority to another, we will know the identity of the Messiah. And he will lead us into the land of promise. And what happens? Decades later, John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River and tells his own disciples to start following Jesus. John decreases so that Jesus can increase. Just like the angel said, John prepares the way for the Messiah, the King of Kings, who leads us out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in the land securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Again, John prepares the way for the Messiah, the King of Kings, who leads us out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. So what, what is Luke asking of his readers? Luke wants us to think long and hard about the identity of John, just like the people in verse 66. What then will this child be? Luke wants us to know the identity of John in order to reveal the identity of Jesus. We're being pulled into the story. Luke wants us to ask the same questions and come to the same conclusions as Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and all the people of the hill country of Judea. Will you believe the word of God? Will you trust the word of God? Will you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Kings? 
Will you accept his deliverance, salvation, mercy, and forgiveness? Will you step out of the darkness and into his light? Will you trust him with your future? Will you give him your allegiance? That's what Luke is asking you and me. Pray with me. Father, we believe your word. Help us, help us to believe. Help us to trust. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings. Jesus, we accept your deliverance, salvation, mercy, and forgiveness. Lead us out of the darkness and into the light. We trust you. We trust you. Holy Spirit, seal these things upon our hearts and cause us to know your joy and your peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.